Folks, we want to welcome you all to On the Edge with K.A. Owens. I'm K.A. Owens, and we're broadcasting from the top of the Haven Building in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, this is Forward Radio 106.5 FM on your radio dial. You can go to forwardradio.org and find out a little bit more about the station. And we're live streaming now. And so if you go to that website, you can listen to us anywhere in the state, anywhere in the country anywhere in the world. Folks, uh, we've got Michael T. here with us. Michael T. is a well-known writer, playwright, author, activist, uh, former Black Panther from the original Black Panthers, uh, man of the world. Welcome to our show, Michael. Thank you very much. So, folks, we're going to talk about uh, international politics today. And one of the reasons we're going to talk about it is because usually African Americans are not consulted on uh, international politics or international finance. We're not even asked our opinion as if we don't have one or have, uh, have no reason to be concerned about it. I think that we do and we have an opinion and uh, African Americans, I believe, just as well informed as uh, anyone else. So, uh, so uh, today it's uh, uh, we're recording this show on Friday, February 25th and that's, you know, we're just a few days in to the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine. And so, of course, uh, February 25th, 2002. And so we're going to uh, converse on what actually that means. And just a few things. Uh, you know, Vladimir Putin is the president of Russia. And whenever former President Obama was asked about Putin and fear of Putin and fear of Russia... You know what he would say? He would say that the Russian economy is smaller than that of Italy. Smaller than that of Italy. So what he was meant to say was Russia's this huge country filled with poor white people with a low standard of living and a big army. Uh, and so that is, and so uh, I wanted to look that look up. So I looked up the uh, top 25 economies according to GDP, and and then so number one is the United States, number two is China, number three is Japan, number four is Germany, number five is the United Kingdom, number six is India, number seven is France, number eight is Italy, number nine is Canada, number ten is South Korea. Number 11 is Russia. So Russia actually is doing less well, according to GDP, than South Korea, Canada, Italy, France, India. Now, right after Russia is Brazil, then Australia, then Spain, then Mexico, then Indonesia. So uh, now Russia has a very large poorly trained army. Very large, poorly trained army. Now, the difference between the Russian army and the American military is, of course, we have all professional military since we ended the draft. And in the United States, uh, for example, people are actually proud uh, to join the military. People join the military to get out of the ghetto, to get off the farm, uh, hmm. job training, veterans benefits, able to go to college on the VA money. And so, but it, it offers a career. Now, the, something different, we have a non-commissioned officer corps that's 
respected in our army, sergeants and so on, first sergeant, buck sergeant, technical sergeant. Buck. These people kind of served 10, 20 years, and they are the core. And, and the army is basically well-fed, you know, three squares a day, all you can eat at the chow hall, clothes if you don't have any. Uh, barracks, uh, uh, mostly it's dorms now. There are very few barracks left on any American military base. Except all the barracks are almost used for storage, old-time World War II barracks. So the, the soldiers, airmen, sailors, they live in dorms, uh, safe, warm, and dry, hot showers every day. So uh, it's, a, it's a lifestyle that you can do for 20 years, be proud of. Now, in Russia, being an enlisted man, uh, it's a hard way to go. No status, no prestige, no respect in your society, none, zero. Uh, only 11% of the people who are eligible for the draft in Russia go into the military. Those are the people who can't bribe their way out of it. <laughs> uh, no Russian parent wants their son to be an enlisted man in the military, maybe an officer, but not an enlisted man. Enlisted man, poor, no food. Maybe you get paid, maybe you don't. But there's no core of non-commissioned officers to keep order, to make sure training is up to a certain level. Uh, they don't have that. That is, we, let's say, now it's 18 months conscription, but what happens is they've got a system where the first-year people are actually more or less supervised and trained by the people who are a year ahead of them, right? And so it's like a bad fraternity. That's how the what it's like. A bad fraternity means you're hazed viciously and brutally. Uh, you're not fed. You you're injured and no one cares. Uh, your son goes in healthy. He comes out with the bad teeth and all kind of injuries, not from fighting the enemy, but from the soldiers in his own unit. So that's also, you know, after the fall of the Soviet Union, uh, you know, how to fund the military was a big problem in Russia, big problem. So you had uh, admirals and generals actually kind of leasing out their soldiers to do work at pseudo-capitalist industries to make enough money to feed their units. You had... Uh, Jet fighter pilots not having enough training time in their jets to train, to fly. Uh, you had jet fighter pilots working part-time as cab driver, uh, that sort of thing. So that's the Russian military. It's pretty ramshackle. But, uh, and so, now, people, Putin's behavior, people are very threatened by it. Putin's behavior reminds me of the behavior of North Korea. North Korea is a poor country, a big army, and nuclear weapons. So the only way they can make themselves feel important is to rattle their saber, and every once in a while they fire artillery rounds into South Korea. They attack a South Korean gunboat every once in a while, that sort of thing. They kidnap some Japanese every once in a while. That's what the North Koreans do. But does anybody want to live in North Korea? South Korea has a booming economy. It's a booming economy. South Korea is number 10 on the list. Russia is number 11. South Korea has got a stronger economy than Russia. So 
uh, North Korea, Russia, China, I'll have one thing to come. Nobody wants to leave where they are and move to China, Russia, or North Korea. So that's the proof problem Putin has. And not only that, people are protesting in Moscow, right as we speak, the fact that Russia has invaded the, the Ukraine. So that's kind of where we are, and I'm going to go into some more things. Uh, um, uh, uh, Michael, what's your take on the Russian invasion of Ukraine and uh, Europe's response? And, uh, you know, because Ukraine is not in NATO, NATO's not going to respond, at least as of right now, and all this sort of thing. Okay, well, for another view, uh, and before I go into uh, that other uh, more ecological leftist view, I want to preface my remarks or frame them with this. Uh, anybody in their right mind should be against war. And because humans die, humans are killed. And not only that, uh, war tends to destroy the natural habitat. And I know uh, a lot of folks think that's frivolous, but uh, you know, coming from an ecological perspective, we think that the natural world is primary. You know, as bad as it would be if the whole social world collapsed and the political and the economic world collapsed, uh, we may be able to rebuild, but it's over if the natural world collapses. So let's think of war in that perspective. And we also have to look at, um, you know, the how warfare is exasperating catastrophic climate change. You know, when I was a young person, I used to think that uh, what is the effect, and this is due to the Vietnam War, of all of these bombs pummeling the earth, that's got to have some kind of effect. I mean, other than destroying natural habitats and the people. I mean, just think of the the millions of bombs that have dropped on this natural place we call home. And I think if if we can't have any concern for that, then we're definitely lost. And and also in light of the fact that, you know, many climatologists um, say that we're facing a, a sixth mass extinction, you know, mainly due to fossil fuel usage and other things. But that leads me right into the whole thing about the military-industrial complex. Now, this is a worldwide phenomenon, but we know that the U.S., you know, has the, uh, you know, the strongest military industrial complex. And first and foremost, it's about selling items of war. War is profitable. You know, when, uh, when there's not a war going on, they need a war to sell these things. This is called creative destruction. You know, you create these things to be destroyed. So we have to look at the armaments industry in both Russia, the United States, and any other industrial complex, um, especially now in light of the declining economy, you know, that's been hit by a pandemic and other things. So there's something to consider that 
you know, maybe our warmongers won another war. You know, U.S. has a thousand bases across the world. The next closest one probably has less than 10. The next closest, the next country um, in terms of military bases probably has less than 10. So those bases, you know, have to be financed. Um, and then there's the question of, and we have to understand, and you were talking about black people, you know, um, needing to understand this, but all people in the world need to understand that what we have going on, and it's been going on for centuries, it's been escalated in the 20th century, since the 20th century, is a contention for world domination between Russia and China and the United States. And, you know, with the fall of the the USSR, the United States claimed, um, um, you know, to be the kingpins of the world. You know, they, they you know, declared that they were the only superpower. And again, for many of us on the left, we don't think that's a good thing. We favor a multipolar world. We think the world would be better if we had several major powers to kind of keep them all in check. Because one thing about the Soviet Union, um, you know, for all of their failures and flaws, uh, they uh, served as a counterweight to U.S. imperialism. And then the other final thing uh, in my my preference to my major remarks is, has to do with um, when we look at the news, we have to keep in mind that much of the information we're getting, especially from the mainstream news, and I'm talking about anywhere from Fox News to CNN to MSNBC, these, these institutions are not, um, um, you know, unbiased entities. Many of them are being funded by the very war industries themselves. So it's no coincidence why we won't get up too many opposing views. You might get that every now and then, but it's no coincidence that in spite of the contention, it's like we got world contention, we got a contention among our ruling class locally, you know, between the fat, I mean, nationally, between the fascists, neocons, and the neo and other liberals in the Democratic Party, and um, but they are pretty much united against Russia. So that's, uh, I find, very revealing. But, um, you know, again, looking at um, the history of this uh, incursion, um, Russia, before the February 22nd, or as of February 22nd of this year, recognized two people's republics in the Donbass region of eastern Ukraine and the Donetsk People's Republic. And, well, let me, let, me, let me start that over. The two republics that Russia recognized were in the Donbass region of eastern Ukraine, the Donetsk People's Republic and the Lugansk People's Republic, both happened in 2014. And again, uh, for much of us on the left, our take on it is that U.S. strategists, war planners, corporate media, politicians, are unanimous in demanding that the European Union must prepare to impose the most extreme economic sanctions 
especially, and this is key, to block the new Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline from Russia, which was to run from Russia to Germany and I think other parts of, uh, of Europe. And the question becomes, why are they so focused on that? Uh, well, part of it is that that 745-mile natural gas pipeline, which is a joint German-Russian energy project, undercuts the ability of giant U.S. energy corporations to sell their far more expensive natural gas extracted through hydraulic fracturing or fracking. Now, that Nord Stream pipeline is completed, and it was waiting the final certification by German regulators, which the German government is withholding, you know, from pressure from the U.S. Uh, the pipeline, which transmits Russian natural gas under the Baltic Sea directly to Germany, also bypasses Ukrainian, the Ukrainian government. Now, we have to also know that Russia already provides around a third of Europe's natural gas through other existing pipelines. While it's far cheaper, environmentally preferable, and more direct to build pipelines from Russia to European customers than to export it from North America, U.S. corporations are driven to offload liquefied natural gas into Europe, Asia, and elsewhere. So I think, you know, it's important for people to know some of those dynamics. You can't really trust the mainstream media. And, uh, you know, and we have to watch it because, I mean, we don't have much else uh, or very little else. But you have to do your research. If you just go by what they say, and not keep in mind who they represent, you really won't understand it. Now, I say all that, that to say that, you know, Russia is no, um, the Russian ruling class is, uh, they're no uh, nice guys. I mean, Putin is no nice guy. You know, he's, an, he's just as much an imperialist as anyone leading the United States. And, um, you know, he does not have, you know, the, the people's best interest at heart. But what he is interested in is competing with the United States and restoring the so-called greatness of the Russian Empire, not under the USSR, because Putin is a capitalist, but under the czar. <laughs> you know, he wants to restore uh, Russia to that period. And, you know, and in that period, you know, places like Ukraine and some other, the other countries close by were part of uh, Tsardom and the, uh, you know, the old Russian kingdom. So we have to keep all of that in mind. And, and also that our country are not the good guys. And I know that might come, you know, as an affront to some people who love Biden and the Biden administration and the Democratic Party and all that. Uh, but they're not good guys. These people aren't, you know, necessarily fighting for our interests. You know, they're caught up in the superpower contention. Biden is pressured, just like Putin is pressured in his country, you know, to, uh, well, on one end, the United States is being pressured by, you know, their big capitalist benefactors to, you know, maintain 
the U.S.'s hegemony in the world, and Putin's backers are pressuring him to restore Russia to its so-called greatness. But again, we have to keep in mind that all of us are affected by this competition and contention, all of us who live in the world, because, you know, we're essentially, and in a left perspective, we try to always start with the political economy, you know, what does this have to do with the vital resources, goods, and services, you know, that are circulating around the globe? You know, it's hard for many people in capitalist countries to understand that because it looks like, by all intents and purposes, that we're not connected to it. I mean, you come in your house, you turn on the lights, you go to the gas station, and it doesn't seem like that anybody is manipulating that. It's just there. You know, whereas in countries like Russia, where the dictatorship is open and there's no illusion about who's in control, people tend to understand that. But you could say in in capitalist societies like the United States, the dictatorship is economic and is, be, and is hidden behind your back. But whether it's hidden or not, you know, we are all in the world dependent on these vital vital resources and goods and services. Like I heard Martin Luther King say years ago, he says, um, being the eloquent person he was, uh, and I'm just paraphrasing it. He says, you wake up in the morning and he says, you might drink a cup of tea that came from China. And then you might go, uh, you know, grab a plate that came from Pakistan. And then you, <laughs> you might go grab a napkin that came from South America. And he was making the case that, you know, the world especially since the 20th century, and we could see where this... Once upon a time, all those things might have been made right here in the States by yes. unionized labor. Yes. And people could actually buy a house. Yes, and, there uh, was more uh, localized... Family with it. Yeah, in the, in, the, in the whole world, you know. There was more localized, you know, um, production. But I was going to say that this whole global process, quiet as it's kept, was set in motion by the transatlantic slave trade. Because think about it. The major resource at that time was African slaves. And in the process of transporting these African slaves from the east to the west, okay, the first time that had been done in great numbers like that. An entire capitalist system was created as maintained. Well, the, the, the foundation was laid. Yes, you yes. Know, and more importantly, it, it, it united east and west. You know, through that trade across the Atlantic, that was the first time that major trade, even though you know there had been visitors and people who had visited the Western Hemisphere from the East, but there wasn't massive trade of slave ships going back and forth, you know, transporting people. So a lot of historians, especially on the left, we cite the beginning of the globalization with the transatlantic slave trade. Now, by the 20th century, that process had been pretty much, according to a lot of historians, completed. So therefore, so that we're, we're at the place we are now. Now, going back to the Ukraine, I don't think anybody wants to see a lot of casualties in the Ukraine mm -hmm. on either side because I don't think the Russian soldiers want to be there at all. The enlisted men and the officers e either. I don't think any of them want to be there. Mm -hmm. Actually, I don't think there's a, a massive amount of support for uh, the establishment of greater Russia in Russia. Exactly. Uh, they'd rather have a higher standard of living yeah. uh, than uh, uh, any empire, a, ram a big ramshackle empire. Mm -hmm. uh, don't want to see, I mean, if 
the West wanted to, it could probably embarrass and humiliate Putin by cracking his army wide open. Mm -hmm. uh, but I don't want to see a, a lot of Russian casualties. I think it'd be interesting to see what the British did in the, Re the Revolutionary War here in the States and what became the States. They offered freedom to any slave who fought for them. Yes. That's what the British did. It'd be interesting to see if the West would offer EU citizenship to any Russian that laid down their arms and, and, and uh, surrendered to the Ukrainians, uh, offered EU citizenship to any, any Russian pilot that landed his plane in, in Europe. That would be interesting to see if anybody took him up uh, on the offer. I bet you there would be plenty of Russians that would. Just like many black slaves took up the British offer to exactly. unite with them, as quiet as that's kept. That's that's a, 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 a well-kept secret. It's that, not talked about. That most of the enslaved Africans in the United States at the time of the war for independence supported the British, I mean, there were many who supported, you know, the insurgent slave owners who were trying to break from the uh, British Empire, but most African-Americans supported the British, wound up in Britain after the war or in Canada, and almost all of the indigenous tribes, I know this hurts a lot of patriots to hear this, but most of the indigenous tribes supported the British. Or they were indifferent or they were neutral. And you can't blame them. I mean, you know, why would they support the people who were taking their land? Why would we support the people who were enslaving us? Absolutely. So uh, so that would be an interesting move. Uh, again, uh, I mean, what uh, what. Uh, the United States doesn't have clean hands because what Putin and the Chinese say, um, whenever we try to take the moral high ground, the United States tries to take the moral high ground. Said, they say, look, look how you treated the indigenous people mm. in your own country. Look how you treated uh, the black slaves that you dragged over from Africa. That's all true. Yes. And so... And look how many times the American military has mm. invaded Latin American country, <laughs> how many times the Marines have gone into Haiti, uh, just even in recent history where uh, American troops went into Panama to overthrow a dictator that we created. Yes. We, we, we created the dictator in <laughs> Panama that we got tired of. We don't like him anymore. So we went in and, and overthrew him. Yeah. And, and, so, and, and that's in recent yeah. history. Yes. In Latin America, which we consider to be our own backyard. Yes. yes. And look at the Spanish-American War mm -hmm. uh, on phony pretexts, uh, 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 invaded Cuba, you know, separated Cuba from Spain, separated Puerto Rico from Spain, and then separated the Philippines uh, uh, from Spain and ran it for many, many years as sort of an American protectorate. And then while at the same time, uh, uh, a few years before that, we were uh, 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 occupying Hawaii, infecting them with, our, you know, with American uh, diseases and then uh, declaring it, uh, the next thing you know, <laughs> 
the, the Hawaiians had their own kingdom. <laughs> Next thing you know, they were an American state and didn't even want to be. So, uh, uh, and those are good points there, K.A., because, see, that, that, that hurts U.S. credibility when, you know, a obnoxious— And so that's one of the things, that's how it relates to what we're teaching in school, because we need to teach the truth in school and acknowledge it and say we're trying to move past it instead of trying to deny it. Yeah. And so that's the problem where the United States would be a lot better off acknowledging its failures and sins and say, hey, we're better than that now instead of acting as, you know, Self-righteous. Yes, in front of China. Because that's all recorded history. I mean, and it gives you no credibility in the world, even when you're fighting a good cause. And I don't necessarily see this as a good cause. But, um, I mean, when we look hypocritical because, you know, the whole founding of the U.S. empire was based on intrusions, annexations, invasions. Now, how can we stand up in— Extermination of native people. Really, how can we stand up— in the world and, and start criticizing other countries because they know that history. This is no secret. Well, the United States is, you know, uh, for good or for ill, the leader of the free world and should stick stand up for the right thing, but while at the same time acknowledging the sins of the